Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. Another Hello, Ronnie. morning in Galway. We're getting our summer at last, I think. Uh, such a pleasure. I was on the prom yesterday, and I, do you know what I noticed? Schools are bringing out their whole classes to the beach. And I'm sure it's very educational. But I was just looking, they play the same games I used to play, like burying each other in the sand, jumping off, uh, you know, into piles of sand, building, you know, passageways for the tide to come in from the sea up to a moat in, just inside. And it was great. And I just felt, you know, it's, it's the timelessness of the beach is a wonderful thing, really. Well, indeed. And we're very lucky to have it on our doorstep. I know the sand is clean and lovely. No question. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, happily. Yeah. Good, Tom. So what are you going to tell us about this week, please? Well, this week I am talking about the Bish. Oh, uh, good. It happens to be exactly 140 years ago since uh, they took over a secondary school. My the Patricia brothers arrived in Galway much earlier, 40 years before, Uh the last Catholic warden invited them and uh, in 1826, and within a month they had opened St. Patrick's Monastery and School, which of course became known as the Mon in Market Street. And famous throughout the, the world. Couple. Yeah, famous yeah, throughout they, the world, Tom. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, they started off with a couple of hundred pupils, and uh, but by the time the famine arrived, they had a thousand boys every day. They were educating them. They were feeding them. And very often they were clothing them as well. It was an enormous success, really. And it was the foundation for what was to come. But uh, we're now in the 1860s. And <clears throat> uh, the model school had just opened in Newcastle. But this was no Catholics were allowed to go there. The Jays was about to open on Sea Road, but it was regarded as being for the higher orders. And the Bishop McEvely was concerned that uh, there were no educational facilities at all for older boys in the lower orders. Uh, in other words, working class, really, I suppose, <laughs> uh, kids. And so in this month, exactly in 1862, 140 years ago, they managed, the brothers managed to organize enough funds to secure a house on Nuns Island. This was quite a large three story house. It was owned, had been owned by a Captain Thompson, who was the superintendent of the Royal Atlantic Steam Navigation Company. Uh, but they took it over within. Uh, a short space of time, they had converted four of the principal rooms uh, into classrooms and what they described as in the very best style without any regard for expense. God, <laughs> be with the days. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm smiling here to myself. Yeah, I know. Yeah. 
Anyway, they reckoned there would be enough accommodation (laughs) for about 200 boys. And so uh, in January 1863, the first pupil arrived. Now, they had two departments. One was known as the Initiatory English Department, for which the fee, by the way, was one pound a year. Right. And the second was, I feel that was the National School. Right. And then there was the Progressive English Mercantile and Science Department, for which the fee was two pounds a year. Now, this was a lot of money in 1862. Uh, And this was designed for working class people. I don't know how much of these fees they collected, but anyway, they designed the courses to prepare the senior boys for careers in commerce, whether it was the civil servants or professional offices or religious life, whatever. The uh, the seminary, the word seminary was quickly dropped and it became St. Joseph's College. And because the bishop had <clears throat> so much to do with it and setting it up, first of all, yeah, regularly visiting it. And he, indeed, he used to teach classes there. So it became known as the bishops, and of course, this Uh, quickly abbreviated to the bishop. I know. And that's what it has been known as. Well, Tom, that's what I say about it famous throughout the world, because you often meet people traveling in America or somewhere like that, and they ask you, were you educated in the bish? Were you you at the bish? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So, I mean, the name is well known. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there were. There were about 120 of them uh, in the beginning, but the numbers began to increase and extra classes had to be added on. But it just wasn't enough. The student body was growing quicker. And the building was not really able to ca- cater for them. But very happily then in the 1930s, <clears throat> excuse me, they managed to buy the former Purse Distillery building across the road, across the street. Uh, a new school was built on this, uh, a secondary school. The secondary school moved there then across the street uh, with its new motto, Sanctitas et Scientia, holiness and knowledge. And I have two photographs in this week. One is of the school taken from across the street, showing the railings in front. And the other is of a a big group of pupils drilling. Uh, (laughs) This was quite a common thing. Obviously, one teacher who I would assume was an ex-army man uh, was very influential in this because I have other photographs of Bish fellas uh, doing major (coughs) drilling displays in the sports ground. In this case, anyway, they are in front of the door where the their motto is carved Sanctitas et Scientia. Uh, it, it, uh, the National School stayed then in the original building on the far side, uh, and it became known as the SEM, uh, the short, shortened version of the seminary. And that remained there until 1954. That, and that was when the SEM and the MAN both came together and moved into St. Patrick's School on Bridge Street. Uh, And then their building on Nuns Island, this old national school, that was knocked and a residence was built for the brothers. I think it eventually was converted into classes as well. Anyway, the school motto today is love God, work hard and take care of one another. Uh, 
And when you think of it, you know, that bishop's decision, Bishop McEverly's decision, 140 years ago, has made an absolutely extraordinary contribution to the quality of life in this city. Really and has. of thousands of young Galwegians, as it you really say, has. No question. living abroad, yeah. yeah. You know, who spent yeah. all of their formative years uh, in that school. And, uh, you know, it was... It's wonderful. And that wonderful sense of loyalty, like what you were just talking about, meeting yes. people abroad, yes. you know, uh, it's it's wonderful. So it's to kind of honour this anniversary of 140 years of uh, <clears throat> opening a secondary school yes. that I have these photographs in this week. Tom, I've said it before, you know, we should really not be afraid to honour some of the great religious orders that came to Galway around that time. And their yes. impact on the town was huge. And we had the Presentation Nuns, we had the Sisters of Mercy, you know, that went into the workhouse, cleaned it up, went around town buying linen, looked after people, then set up schools for girls. In, in your case, the Patrician Brothers, they set up a great school for boys. We had the yeah. Mon as well, the great tradition there, where they actually gave the boys breakfast before they started their day's work. I, think, it, yeah. I think that's the a most... A thousand of them every day. <laughs> Isn't this extraordinary? During the famine, yeah. It's hard yeah. to believe it, yeah. Yeah, but I yeah. can well imagine the value of that and what yeah. a relief for parents to know that at least... You know, the child was getting oh, yeah. nourishment, you know. And there were the Dominicans and Taylor's Hill. There and were there were also the Jesuits. The yes, Jesuits. Uh, not for, well, for several centuries, the Jesuits have been here. Yes, so, but their, their secondary school more or less coincided with the opening of the Bish. Okay, okay. Uh, well, of course, there's that slight division in the town, whether you're a Jez mug or a Bish mug. I, I'm not no, Excuse me. Yeah. A bish gawk, a bish gawk. <laughs> I know. I think they have other handles on them today, but anyway. I'd say so. We won't go That's what it was in our time. I'm also yeah. not ashamed to repeat the, the, the motto that the bish have, love God, work hard, and take care of one another. I think that's a very yeah. fine school motto. And uh, Oh, absolutely. Isn't it good? Isn't it good? Yeah. Yeah, yeah really? I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now, Tom, yeah. as you probably know, there are great plans for Nuns Island. Um, there's talk about the Bish going up to beyond Newcastle there on the university yeah. grounds, um, which I think is a good idea. And the university uh, yes. is going to move more into Nuns Island and build student accommodation, I think, things like that, that they have in mind. And uh, I think that's good on two fronts. Number one. I'm delighted the university is moving back into the town. I was afraid it was going so far upriver that it would be in Uttarard before, before long. We need the university in the centre of the town as much as possible, I think. But yeah. we have too many schools, of course, in the centre of town or near the centre of town. You know, with difficulty with parking and collecting young people, letting them down, picking them up, you yeah. know. So by moving the bish might set an example for other schools to move out as well, you know. Well, right? they need the space, Ronnie, as well. I yes, mean, when you they don't, for example, they don't have a playing pitch. No. You know, uh, they, they simply need the space, and it's, it's quite overcrowded as it is, and yeah. it's such a wonderful educational institution that it would be criminal for it. Uh, and, I, and I hope the move will take place soon. 
So do I. So do I, yeah. Tom. I think that's a, it's a great move, and uh, you know it's great. Yeah. But anyway, that's that. That's an accolade worth bestowing today. Well done. I'm so glad you did all that so well, because I, I feel the same. You know that, that that school is an amazing school. It's one of the heartbeats of the town, and yes. uh, how proud a lot of guys are that have been there and gone through the school and gone on to college. You know, they have a great reputation. So it's a wonderful tribute. Well done, Tom. That's lovely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm still on uh, my friend Michael Henry Burke and uh, the trouble with his tenants in Ballydugan near Loch Ray. And I've been reading Anne O'Reardon's book with great interest. So I'll continue the story, Tom, because it's quite interesting because it reflects more than just the story of Michael Henry Burke, this massive change that was happening in the landlord class uh, in the early years of the 20th century. And I'm going to do more on it even when I finished Michael Henry Burke. So people who don't want to stop listening because it's so interesting. You're dealing with the class of people, the landlord class of people who are decimated, actually decimated by their own uh, legal authorities that pass laws, taking the land from them, allowing their tenants to buy land at reasonable prices. And of course, they as a race, if you want to call them that, virtually disappeared. But I'll come to that in the weeks ahead. But just to pick up the story, Michael Henry Burke, he was almost 70 years of age, Tom, when he returned home in June 1922 to find his home in Ballydugan. I, was, I said it last week, a burnt out shell. Now, the poor man, and you have to have some sympathy for him, he had to be shocked and saddened. But of course, he was obviously expecting something like this to happen, you know? Sure. Since the Wyndham Land Act of 1903 had been published, tenants had the means to buy the farms they worked on all their lives, and rightly so. And Burke was under pressure to sell all or part of his estate. He suffered continuous intimidation and death threats, many of them extremely uh, horrific. Uh, But he made it clear he would not be selling his land, which had been in his family for something like 400 years. He wouldn't sell it to anybody. Uh, He was a proud owner of the state of more than 1,500 acres in East Galway, and he was a descendant of an Anglo-Norman family which had a powerful base in Portumna. I mean, he really had Norman blood in his veins, there's no question. But still, the the decision now was, would he go or would he stay with his burnt out house? So he decided to explore what kind of compensation he would get to rebuild his house. Or would he accept what he could make through the Wyndham Land Act, sell up and leave the country? But of course, Michael Henry Burke Tom was not for turning. (laughs) Now, as I said, an extraordinary time in Irish history when the ownership of land completely reversed itself in favour of the tenant. For many of the landed families, the experiences of intimidation and burning of their homes, and don't forget, Tom, a total of 275 landlord houses were burnt across the state in the first two decades of the last century forcing them to sell up and go. Many of these Anglo-Irish families felt trapped between different worlds. And England 
which had lost all interest in them, and an Ireland which, you know, they suddenly had become aliens instead of, if you like, a ruling class of people. Now, not all of them felt that, but many of them did. On a simple human level, I suppose we have to say Burke had few options but to remain. He had lost his house and his wife, by the way. She left him after a difficult marriage the day after the burning, but I'll come back to that again. And his sons were away. Uh, he had a reduced income and frankly had few places to go. Burke had a, a genuine attachment to his ancestral place and combined with his stubborn personality, and boy, he was stubborn, made him determined <laughs> to fight his intimidators. He resolved and he said in public, I am not going to be smoked out. Now, Lord Clonbrock, fairly a neighbour of his in Ahaskra, expressed similar type of attachment when Lord Clonbrock would be a highly respected landlord and very decent during the famine uh, and a decent family. He said, I wish to live and die in the old place where my father lived. Now, he was perceived as, as, as been a generous landlord. And the poor man was much maligned, actually, for his failure to embrace the spirit of the Lindum, Wyndham Land Act and sell his land to his tenants. Again, he was not going to do that, but he was forced to sell most of it. Uh, Burke was unlucky in that his application for compensation fell between the two stools of the British government withdrawing from Ireland and the new Irish state, which was not well disposed towards landlords, nor, nor to their houses and their estates. Burke saw £25,000 being the estimated cost for rebuilding and the loss of his contents and valuables. On the understanding, however, that Burke was going to rebuild between the Dominion office in London, Britain still had some responsibility for these people, and the Irish Free State, he was granted a total of 11,500, far short of the amount he was looking for. But, um, you know, he accepted, and amazingly, he began to rebuild. Um, now, there were several other landlords around were looking for money as well because their properties were burnt. The Kerwin's property near Tume. Uh, was burnt in January 1923, I think it was. They sought uh, 80,000. They were given 33,000. You had the Burks of Marble Hill House. They sought 50,000 for the burning of their house. They only got 4,250. William Purse uh, uh, from Roxburgh, he claimed 33,513 pounds. I don't know where he got that from. Uh, and even though he was not going to rebuild, he was awarded 16,000. Augusta Lady Gregory, of course, who was a purse, who had spent her childhood in Roxburgh, revisited the house in 1924 and lamented its gloomy and damaged state. The house, she wrote in her diary, it's a ruin, it's very sad, just the wall standing blackened and all the yards silent. I'm afraid the house will never be built again. All silent that was once so full of life and stir in my childhood and only deserted now. Yeah, well, there was, there was that attitude there among themselves because they saw themselves as a beaten race, really. Anyway, despite the shortcomings, Burke set to work rebuilding Bally Dugan. 
The work was estimated to cost 9,400 and 11,000. He raised further funds by selling horses and cattle and selling ash and beech trees in his extensive woodlands. During the construction, a number of problems arose between the architect Charles J. Dunlop and the builder and Burke himself, because Burke was this kind of man, I'm afraid, that there were always rows and solicitors were required, not for the first time, to restore the peace. Burke was now 78 and had suffered a serious stroke, but he finally took up residence in his newly built house exactly as it was before in 1931. Now, he was getting old and, you know, just wasn't able for all of this. Ah, yeah. You know, so he asked his son, William St. George Burke, to come home from America and live with them in Ballyduga and to help him run the estate. Now, despite being old and in poor health, Burke still retained his spirit and strong will, dictating the terms of living arrangements to his son, insisting, and this has made me smile, no dogs were to be allowed into the house except into the basement and only at night. So poor his son struggled to make a living arrangements work, but in the end he moved out of the house leaving his father to run the affairs and the, with the support of a Mrs. Cameron, who his father had come to depend on. Now, meanwhile, I just want to tell you about Michael Dempsey and the others. They did not relax their pressure on Burke, even though it was clear the man was not for turning, even at this late stage, having rebuilt his house. Burke still faced consistent challenges. He attempted to lease land on a conacre basis, basis to other farmers, but they in turn faced a boycott from their neighbours. Burke was annoyed by the behaviour of his agent, Raoul Joyce, who had let land to Dempsey, contrary to Dirk's, Burke's express wishes. No land is to be let to Dempsey. But it's possible, of course, that Joyce had come under pressure from Dempsey and others to side with the local protest or face the consequences. When Joyce failed Burke's explicit orders to get rid of Costello, and he was the other herdsman and suspected agitator, Burke was so furious that for the first time he actually did consider selling out. However, his solicitor came to his rescue and he managed to secure uh, an eviction order on Dempsey and Costello. Now, this proved effective for Costello, but Dempsey, who I think was a very clever man, pleaded that the effect of the eviction order had so shocked his poor wife that she was left hanging between life and death. <laughs> and he appealed for time for his wife to recover, adding that if Mr. Burke thinks I'm responsible for any injury he may have suffered in the past, I sincerely regret it and humbly apologize to him. Well, we wonder how sincere that was. But nevertheless, yes, the letter was addressed <laughs> to Burke's other son, Bobby, who prevailed upon his father to pos postpone the eviction for several months, which it was. And finally, Michael Dempsey and his family had lived on Burke's estate for 10 years after Belly Dugan was burnt. He was the source of real distress to poor old Burke. Even later, after the Dempseys had moved to a house in nearby Larch Hill, Raoul Joyce, Burke's agent, appointed Dempsey caretaker on the estate. 
which, oh which, my God. which severely tested his landlord's patience. Sure did, it sure did. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to leave it there, Tom, and uh, okay. we'll finish it next week. This is uh, like the Follow Your Uppers years ago in the Astoria well, on a I Sunday know, afternoon. I know, I know. It's an absolutely amazing story. We're we left hanging some... over a cliff or, or <laughs> well, we're... tied to a train track when the train <laughs> yes, is coming. I know, tied to the tracks. Um <laughs> We always say, uh, we have said before, that some of these stories would make a movie. They certainly would make a play. There's oh, some of yes. the Terry Orchard in this, really. But, or a novel, yeah. Indeed. Or a novel. But yeah. uh, this man, Michael Henry Burke, was not for turning. But next week, I'm just going to talk about his wife and his two sons, which are very interesting. And I'll end it there. Um, so okay. I leave it at that, Tom. I leave okay. it at that. All Until- right. Until next week, so Ronnie. I look forward to it as always, Tom. You take care. (laughs) Thank you. God bless. Mind yourself. Bye, Tom.